Hadassah, and I'm so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. If you'd like to follow along inside the text, you can find a fully vowelized PDF of the DAF at www.batshevalearningcenter.com slash DAF. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We are going to be learning DAF Mem Aleph of Masecha Saita today. I'm going to be starting a really fascinating Mishnah all about Agrippas Hamelech um, and going to end off the DAF with some discussion about flattery. So lots of interesting stuff coming up. Okay, so we're going to start actually right at the top of Mem Aleph, Ahmed Aleph. Um, we are, we are like the second line from the top of the page, the last word on the left. So we said in the Mishnah that uh, the Kain Gadol on Yom Kippur reads some sections of, uh, like out of the Sefer Torah, uh, followed by um, some brachas that he says. And he said that he reads two different sections within uh, Chomish Vayikra. He reads the, pas- the section of Ach Asar, first, uh, sorry, first Ach it which is in Vayikra Perik Tethain, and then Ach Asar, which is in Vayikra Perik Chef Gimel, right? So these are sections which are, you know, relatively close to each other, but it's, they're not right next to each other. Um, and so this is going to pose a problem for us uh, as a Gemara is going to explain, Uraminhi, right? We have a contradictory, contradicting text, which indicates we don't do this. It says, Medalgin Benevi, we can read, we can skip sections when reading uh, in the Nevi'im, right? So meaning we can read one section, skip the middle, and then read a section that's some time later. The Ain Medalgin Batera, but we don't do that when reading the Torah. In the Torah, we need to read sections that are consecutive. So Amar Abaya said, like, gotcha, this is not difficult. Here, uh, our Mishnah, which indicates that you can skip sections, uh, that's only if the sections are close enough uh, so that the, the reader can roll the scroll within the amount of time that it takes for the translator to translate the Pasuk, as we mentioned before. And those times it was customary to have the reader read the Pasuk in Hebrew. Uh, followed by uh, a translator who would translate it into Aramaic, right? And so Abaye is saying as long as the sections are close enough that you could flip to the next section before the translation is finished, that's fine, right? Because then they'll be this seamless, um, you know, uninterrupted um, reading of the tar. But come here when it says you can't skip portions of the Torah, when the passages are so far apart that you won't have time to switch to the next passage before the translator is finished. So the Gemara is like, huh. no, this, this, even Abayi's explanation is not sufficient. It says you can skip passages in the Nevi'im and not in the Torah. How much can you skip, right? How far apart 
How far can you skip in the Nevi'im? Ad Kedesh Le'yifsek HaMetorgamon. So even when you, in the Nevi'im, where it says you can skip, you could only, even then you could only skip uh, if you're able to move to the next section before the translation is finished. Miklal, that implies, Debetera Klal Klal, that when you're reading the Torah, you can never skip, right? Even if you're able to reach the next section before the translation is finished. So LMR Baya, so Abaya offers another explanation instead. Like Hashtia, there is no difficulty here. Khan Inyan Akhad, Khan Inyanin. Right? When it says that you are allowed to when you, you can skip, that's when both sections are talking about uh, the same idea. Right? When it says you can't skip, you can't skip if the two sections are on different topics, because then people might get confused, right? And then people won't be paying attention. Right during the, at least that first when you read the second section, uh, they're gonna get confused, and you want people to be listening the whole time. Mahatanya, and this is exactly Abaya Abaya's um, distinction is supported by the following brisa: Medalgin Batira Inyan Echad. It says you are allowed to skip sections when reading the Torah as long as they are talking about the same subject. Uvinavim Bishnei and you could skip when reading the Nevi, even if they're two separate topics. And, and, you know, always, regardless of whether it's Nevi, Nevi'im, or the Torah, you have to make sure that you're able to switch the next section and by the time the translator is finished translating. The Ain Madalgan mean Nabi Lenebi, and we don't skip from one safer of Nabiim to another safer of Nabiim. Shall Shnaim Asar Madalgan, but among the twelve, right, the book of Trey Asar, right, which are twelve sort of shorter uh, books of Nabiim, which are generally grouped together. So within these twelve Nabiim, right, you can skip. Uh, and you're allowed to skip within the same safer, provided that you don't skip from the end to the beginning, right? At least read it in the order that they are written. Okay, so that explains that letter of the Mishnah. So we're going to move on uh, in our an- analysis of the Mishnah's description of the ceremony M. Kepper. So it says, the uh, It says, the after reading these two sections and Sefer Vayikra, he rolls up the Sefer Torah and places it against his chest. And he says, more than what I've read is right here. And then he proceeds to say, uh, recite a section, a passage from Sefer Bamidbar by heart. So Mar says, Lama, why does he have to go through this whole thing, right? And say, oh, more than what I've read to you is right here. So as not to cast aspersions on the Torah scroll, right? Because people might think, oh, why is the Kayangadal not reading from the Sefer Torah? Why is he saying it by heart? It must be because the Sefer Torah is invalid, right? It's puzzle. He doesn't want people to think that. So he says, no, 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 the Torah, this Sefer Torah is complete. All of the sections are written here. I'm not, you know, I'm saying it by heart for other reasons, not because the Sefer Torah is invalid. Um, so, right? And the Mishnah had said, the section, the Parsha of Uba Asar and Chlemish Bamidbar, he reads by heart. 
So the Gemara is going to ask, okay, why indeed does he read it by heart, right? Let him just roll the scroll until he reaches that section and read it. So Amar of Hunabar Yehuda, Amar of Sheshis, Hunabar Yehuda said, uh, that Rav Shesha said, We do not roll a Torah scroll in the public uh, because of the Kavod Tzibor. We don't want to have to make people wait around until you're finished rolling uh, the Torah scroll, right? So since Vayikra and Bar are, you know, far apart, we don't want to make the people wait, wait around uh, while that process is happening. Okay, fine. So bring a second Torah scroll and read from that scroll. We don't bring a second Torah scroll because we don't want people to think that the first Torah scroll is invalid. says, we bring another Torah scroll because we don't want to make an unnecessary bracha. Right? There's a concept. There's a concept of bracha levatala where you make a bracha in vain for no reason. This is something slightly different. It's not quite a bracha in vain, right? You're making a bracha on a second Torah, but you don't need to make that bracha. Like so, for example, you know, when you're making a bracha on food, if one were to make a bracha uh, on, you know, on a cookie, right? And then bench and then make a bracha on another cookie, right? They've made a bracha that they need to make, but it was unnecessary. They could have simply not benched and just had that one bracha cover for two. And that's something that's improper. We want to minimize the amount of brachas we make because Hashem's name is so holy, right? So we only want to make a bracha if it's really necessary. And so Rish Lakish says that's why we don't have two Torah scrolls. We could suffice with one um, so it's not to make an unnecessary bracha. So the Gemara says, wait, are we really concerned about the fact that there's going to be, you know, that people are going to be suspect that the first Torah scroll is invalid? We know that there's a common practice, right? You know, some of you might be familiar with this. There are times in in the year where in Shul, uh, multiple Torahs are brought out to be read. Right, if Rosh Chodesh Teves, which is also Hanukkah, it's always on Hanukkah, um, happens on Shabbos, maybe Shalash Taris, then three Torahs are brought out to the congregation. So one Torah, in one Torah, you read, uh, you know, a section to do with Hanukkah. Sorry, means one um, of the topic of the day, meaning the Parsha. The Achas Shalash one of them, you read the section relating to Rosh Chodesh, the Achas Hanukkah, and one of them, the section relating to Hanukkah, right? So it seems clear that, you know, it's common practice that on Shabbat Rosh Chodesh Hanukkah, we not only read two Torah scrolls, we read three Torah scrolls, right? And clearly, we're not concerned that uh, people might think the other two scrolls are invalid. So the Gemara answers, Tulsa Gavri, but Tulsa Sifre, like a Gamma. In Shul, you have generally at least three different people reading from the Torah scroll. You don't have one person reading from all three. And so when there's three different men, um, you know, no one's going to be suspect anything because they'll think you simply need three people, each person to read from their own scroll. Chad Gavri, but Trey Sifre, Gamma. But if there's one person reading from two different scrolls, there is a concern that people might think there's a flaw. And therefore, when the Kayan Gadol reads for the entire Jewish people, we don't want to bring more than one scroll because he's a single individual.
Okay, so moving along, uh, analyzing the Mishnah. So the Mishnah had said, after reading the Torah, the Kayan Gadol recites eight blessings. Our sages have taught, Right, he blesses the Torah scroll uh, this with the same the same bracha that's made in Shul, right? When someone gets an Aliyah, right? That's the bracha that he makes. Uh, he makes the uh, He makes a bracha on the Avaida and a bracha of thanksgiving, and a bracha thanking Hashem for forgiving our sins. The same brachas that are established in the Shema Nasri, right? So those are the brachas of um, Ritzay, Maidim, and uh, Melech Mechel Vesaleach, which we say in our in the Shema Nasri, in Yom Kippur. Uh, he then says, I'll have Mikdash, Bifnei Atzmai, right? A uh, separate bracha for the base of Mikdash. Bal Kahanim, Bifnei Atzman, a separate bracha for the Kahanim. Yisrael, Bifnei Atzman, a separate bracha concerning the Jewish people. Bal Yisraelim, Bifnei Atzman, a separate bracha concerning Yerushalayim. Vashar, Tefillah. And the Mishnah said, the eighth bracha is just the rest of the prayer, right? It was kind of an ambiguous term. What is this Sha'ar Tefillah that he says? So Tanarabbanan, our sages have taught, Sha'ar Tefillah, this Rest of the prayer is Trina Rina Ubakasha Shaamcha Yisrael Trichin Libashaya, right? It's a supplication, a song, and a request uh, saying that the Jewish people are in need of redemption. And the bracha ends with Barachatashem Shemeat Fila, he who hears prayer. So after this point, maybe safer Torah we took basic. Every every person brings a safer Torah from their home, the Kairabai, and reads inside it. Uh, why, why do we do all of this? Why do we make everyone get their own safer Torah and read it? To show its beautiful appearance to the public as a way of showing the how much uh, we cherish, the, the Jewish people cherish the mitzvah and cherish the Torah, that everyone brings their own uh, from their own home. And just a small note that Rashi mentions, right, how can they carry, right? Presumably this is Yom Kippur. Uh, so he says there's, you know, two different alternate ways of viewing this. There is actually a view that carrying is not an issue in Yom Kippur. So it could be, which we don't follow today, obviously, but could be the Mishnah, the cis brisa was following that view, or it could be this brisa uh, was following the view that Yerushalayim, because of the gates around Yerushalayim, had an Arab around it, and therefore everyone was able to carry their Sifri Torah. Okay, so we finished that Mishnah concerning the Berches, the Berches Kaigado. Uh, the next Mishnah is going to concern Hakel, right? The, the section of the Torah the king reads at the Hakel ceremony once in eight years, uh, and this was another item on the list of things which must be said in Lashon HaKodesh. So Parshas HaMalach Ketzad, how was the portion of Torah right, read by the king? So Maitzayim Tevrishan Shalchag Eshmini, Chag, Bishmini, but Maitzayim So it was read on the conclusion of the first day of Yom Tov, on the eighth, right, on the eighth year, after the conclusion of the Seventh year, the Shemitah year. I said, like Bima Shell Eights, they would make a wooden platform, Bazara, in the courtyard of the base of Mikdash, who and he would sit on it. Shanamar, as it says, be Kate Sheva Shadavimayid, right? At the end of seven years, at the appointed time. 
cosmic Nessus Nigel Safer Terra. So this order is reminiscent of what we read earlier with regard to the Kain Gadol. The cosmic Nessus, right, the person kind of in charge of the proceedings, takes the Safer Torah and gives it to the Reishek Nessus, who kind of had a, I guess, analog, a role analog, kind of similar to what maybe what a Gabai would do in, in the sense he would, you know, also order, um, make order of you know the appointments of who would do what uh and in the shul nice again so the rishik nessus nice little scan the rishik nessus would give the safer torah to the scan the assistant kangadal who would take the kangadal's place in case of any emergency baskan nice little kangadal the scan the assistant kangadal would give it to the kangadal himself the kangadal nice little mouth and the kangadal would give it to the king but malach i made the king would stand up, receive the Sefer Torah. Um, but then he would sit down while actually reading the Torah. Now, Agrippas HaMelech, so now the Mishnah is going to tell us a little anecdote about Agrippas HaMelech. Agrippas HaMelech was a descendant, a grandson of King Herod. Um, Herod was a actually a descendant of Conger converts. I do mean converts. Um, so one of the, I think Hyrcanus, one of the Hashmonai kings conquered Idumia, which was kind of a region adjacent to Eretz Israel. That was a region filled with non-Jewish inhabitants. Um, and he kind of had them go through a forced conversion if they wanted to stay living in that area. So um, so Herod was raised as a Jew, but the, the conversion was not really so sincere as you can imagine as it was forced. Um, and Herod eventually was appointed, you know, after civil war, uh, like the kind of dramatic civil war amongst the Jewish people, Herod was appointed as by the Romans, right, as a king over Judea. He was a ruthless, really infamous um, dictator. He killed so many of the Jewish people. He was not friendly towards uh, religion, although, again, he considered himself a Jew. He was not really very uh, beloved or friendly to the Jews. Agrippas was his grandson, and Agrippa was actually uh, quite friendly to the Jewish people. Um, but he was the descendant of converts, as we said, and as such, he was not technically fit to be king over the Jewish people, right? The Torah says that um, kings should ideally be from base David, but they can also be from another shavit amongst the Jewish people. But it must be someone who was born a Jew and their parents were born Jewish. So Agrippas was technically uh, unfit to be the king of the Jewish people. But nevertheless, he was king at this time and he did perform uh, Hakel uh, when he was king. Just to so, note, Agrippas' mother was Jewish, actually, um, which is why there's actually a disagreement about whether or not whether or not, like, how, how invalid his kingship was. Um, like, Rashi says that it was only Dura, only Durabanan was he not allowed to be king. Um, but Daraisa, as long as just as long as the mother's Jewish, um, he could, could technically have been king. Daraisa, but in Durabanan, it was an issue. Um, Taisvay says that that's not the case, but both parents have to be Jewish, even in Hatara, in order for him to be considered a king. So he was completely invalid um, altogether. Um, mm-hmm. As we'll see later on, the Gemara is going to discuss, sort of get into that. You know why the Chachamim were were sort of criticized for not for sort of giving validity to his kingship, even though it wasn't really acceptable in the mm, Right, that's going to be super important going yeah. forward. So right, so we have this fascinating sort of anecdote of how Agrippa Samelech 
uh, conducted this ceremony. So he says, a group of Hamalach Ahmad, he stood up, Vikibel, he received the Sefer Torah, Vikara Aimed, and he read it while standing. Right. So he said before that generally kings would read it sitting. He read it standing out of an extra gesture of respect to the Torah. Right. And the Chachamim praised him, right, for his uh, respect for the Torah. One pasuk in this section the king needs to read is the pasuk which says you may not appoint a foreigner over you, right? The pasuk which says you cannot appoint a non-Jew or a convert to be a king over the Jewish people. So Zalgo ain't of demise, right? He started to cry because he realized that this pasuk essentially was disqual- disqualified him from being a king. So Amr lied, the Chacham told him, don't, don't be afraid, Agripas, don't worry. You are our brother, you are our brother. And they, in that way, tried to console him. Um, and as it also says, right, this was, as Rashi, Rashi says, this was a, they said this because his mother was Jewish, right? So in fact, it could be possibly he had some sort of uh, legitimacy. Just an interesting question that Benny Yada brings up is there's a there's an earlier pasuk um, that says Mikarev Achicha Tasem Alechamalach right that this is the law right you shouldn't have a non-Jewish king but there was a previous um, pasuk that says the Ase that you should appoint a king from amongst your brothers so the question is why didn't he cry then <laughs> why did he only cry here um, so two answers are given one is that. In general, a law is more severe than an ase, right? When, when a, a negative commandment is more, you know, in certain ways, obviously, um, is more severe, um, and therefore, uh, and therefore, like it sort of shook him up more when he got to like the the negative um, commandment. Um, but also, another another answer is that the mitzvah's ase to appoint a king specifically from your brothers that only applies at the time that they appointed him so once at the time that he became king then that ase applied but once he's already king as we'll actually discuss later on um there's room to say that maybe you know that ase doesn't really apply anymore but the life ase of not having a king um who's who's from from not from the jewish people that is a continuous love that's all the time and that's why he's still crying about it now um because that's something which he's transgressing you know every day that he's that he's still functioning as a king well, um, oh, sorry. One more thing, actually, about also achinuata. Right, it says in the in the Mishnah twice. Achinuata, achinuata. Like, what's the double the double language here? So, the Ben Hayat also gives two answers here. One answer is that they're saying to him, like, "Don't worry, we're gonna, you know, keep you in your position. We're not firing you, um, and we're also gonna keep your children and your children in the in the, the royal uh, lineage, right? We're not gonna sort of." Uh, let your children remove the position from your children either. Um, and the other one, the other answer is Achinoata. The first, the first Achinoata is saying, like, don't worry, you're, you know, you're, you're Yichas, your family. We consider you like family, right? You're still considered like one of our brothers. And not only in your Yichas, but also in your actions, right? Because he was actually a, 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 a good, you know, um, kind king. So they're saying in your actions, you've also shown that you're, that you're really our brother. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's really fascinating little tidbit here in the Mishnah. We'll, you know, unpack it more in the Gemara. Yeah. Um so the Mishnah continues just you know, describing what the king generally does during Hakel. So it says Vikaram Chilas Ila Devarim Shma Shma. Right. So he reads from the beginning of Chavish Devarim. 
right? Until, you know, the words of Shema, which is in the sixth, beginning of the sixth uh, parak. Ushma uh, v'hayim Shemaya, right? He reads Shema v'hayim Shemaya, Aser to Aser. Uh, and, you know, the Parsha about giving Meister, Tichalil Aser, right? Um, the Parsha of, like, when you made the end, like, also about Meister, Parsha Samelech, the Parsha about the appointing of a king, Ubrachai Suklalis, right? The Parsha with describes the blessings and the curses, right? Of her Grizzim and her Evo. Achikam are called Parsha until he finishes that entire section. Right? So these are kind of like foundational. Um, p- portions of the Torah which describe e, like the Kabbalah's all mitzvahs, right? It talks about like important mitzvahs. It talks about the importance of listening to the king. It talks about the bris, the covenant, which we took upon ourselves, the commitment which we make to do Torah and mitzvahs. Um, and the king is reading this once in eight years to kind of inspire the people and re-inspire that connection and that commitment uh, that they made to Torah and mitzvahs. After reading these Portions uh, from the Torah, the Berachas Shekayan Gadol Mavarachas and Hamalach Mavarachas, and the same Berachas that the Kayan Gadol makes on Yom Kippur, which we described just before, the King makes those Berachas. Alas Shneis and Shalver Galans Takas Mechilas Avon, except instead of the Bracha of Mechilas Avon of forgiving sins, which is Yom Kippur, he makes the Bracha uh, concerning the Regalim, right? The Bracha that we make in Shemun Arzer Mekadesh Israel Vazman. Okay, Gemara. So the Gemara is going to analyze that first line in the Mishnah. The Mishnah gave a lot of different descriptions of when exactly exactly Hakel takes place. He, it said, "Maitzei yam to Rishain Shalchag Shalchag B'Shmini B'Maitzei Shvius." Right, gave us three different descriptions. So why was the Mishnah being so specific? Right, what was it trying to say? Um. So. So the Mishnah says that the Hakel takes place Bashmini, the eighth. The eighth is a very vague word. So Sokadatach Ema, Bashmini is like, might you say that Hakel takes place on the eighth day of Sukkot? Um so sorry, so Bashmini Sokadatach, what do you think it's the eighth day of Sukkot? No, when it says Shminis, uh Bashminis, it means the eighth year. Right, so first the Gemara gets that that's out of the way. But Kohani Lemeli, why does he? Why does the Mishnah need to tell me all of these details? So it's tricky. It's all necessary. To Rahmana If the pasuk uh, had said, you know, just Mikates at the end of seven years, Havamina Nimnumihasta. Let's just count seven years from now. When's now? Now is in the fortieth year when the Jews are in the desert. To count seven years from that time. Now, the Shemitah cycle only began, actually, after the land was divided and conquered by Yeshua some 14 years later, after they entered Eretz Yisrael. Um, so, if, so, right, but if you just admit Kate, you might have thought it means, oh, from right now, from the 40th year uh, in the desert, where the Jewish people are hearing this command for the first time. Although they did not actually... Um, you know, occur in the Shemitah year. So, that's why the, the Pasuk says, Bishmitah. And actually, the Shemitah year, you got to wait till 14 years after the land is divided and conquered. Once the Shemitah cycle starts, that seven years, it's those seven years that we're talking about. If the Pasuk had just said Shemitah, I would have said at the end of the Shemitah year. Uh, right, so maybe you know, Chaftas Elul of the Shemitah year. So, that's why the 
in the appointed time in the festival, right? The Yom Tov, um, which is Sukkot. So if I would just say the festival, I would have thought it's the festival of Rosh Hashanah, right? The first festival of the year. So that's why the Pesach specified the Chag HaSukkot. And the festival of Sukkot. Because of Rahman Bachag Sukkot, if the Pazak had said Bachag Hasukas, Havamina Afilu Yamtav Akhran, I would have thought it could even be the second Yamtav of Sukkot. It could even be Shmini Atzeris. So Kasav Rahmana, Bavai Kal Yisrael, when all of the Jewish people come, Mayat Khaldalimait, at the beginning of the Yamtav, you know, that first moment when all the Jewish people gather in Yerushalayim. Okay, so now we're going to analyze the order uh, in which the Sefer Torah is passed from person to person. So the Mishnah had said, V'chazan HaKnesses, nice little Sefer Torah, but nice to the Rosh HaKnesses, right? The Chazan HaKnesses gives the Sefer Torah to the Rosh HaKnesses, uh, and so on, right? Then the Rosh HaKnesses gives it to the Skan, and the Skan to the Kaigado, and then, and then to the King. So, Shmat Minah, Cholken Kavad L'Talmud, right? You might read this Mishnah and think that you... Give honor to the student in front of the teacher because we're allowing the Reishaknesses and you know all these other people to carry the Sefer Torah before the king himself. Amar said, No, you read it all wrong. All of these people passing the Sefer Torah is all to honor the king, right? To show that he's like, you know, removed, he's like kind of like the highest rank, right, above all of these different men. Uh, so the Mishnah had said, uh, the Mishnah had said the king stands uh, and receives a Torah and then reads while sitting. But Agrippas, right, uh, stood while he received it and also read while he was standing, right? So I made me Yeshev. So from the fact that the that the Mishnah said that a group of Samel stood up at that point, that implies that beforehand, before he received the Sefer Torah, he was sitting. Right? Didn't we, didn't we know that nobody is allowed to sit in the Azar of the base of Mikdash except for kings who are descendants of the house of David? As it says, David HaMelech came and sat before Hashem. So only David HaMelech was allowed to sit, not anyone else who's not a descendant of base David. So it must be because Amor of Chizdab Ezra Stashim, just as Rav Chizda had said, uh, that, you know, about a similar Torah reading that it takes place in the Ezra Stashim. Hachanami Ezra Stashim. So too here, um, the reading of the Torah. Uh, of the king's reading of the Torah takes place in the Ezra Snashim. Um, as we mentioned before, the Ezra Snashim is just outside of the Ezra, uh, and it doesn't have the same holiness of the Ezra, and as such, um, you are allowed sit- to sit down there. The Mishnah had said, that the Chachamim praised Agrippas uh, for standing, right? Even though he could have sat, they praised him for standing. Now, Shibhuhu, the fact that they praised him, Miklal de Shapir that implies that he did something that was correct, right, and admirable. Uh, but didn't Rabashi say, Amar Nasi Even according to the one who says that 
uh, Nasi, right, kind of the religious leader of the Jewish people, who um, forgoes his honor. It is valid, right? He's allowed to, he has the right to forgo his honor. But if a king decides to forgo his honor, his honor is not relinquished, right? And so how could Agrippa Samal choose to forgo the honor due to him of sitting down and choose to stand up? Right. That seems to be against the teaching, which is that a king's honor is not his own. Right. He doesn't have the right to just relinquish it if he wants to. Shanamar, as it says, right, says that you should place a king for yourself over you. Right. There's a mitzvah for the honor of the king to be on the people. And as such, the king can't just choose to forgo his honor. There's a mitzvah for the king to be awed and revered. So the Gemara answers mitzvah shani. This, when like, the king is doing a mitzvah, the situation is different, and a king is allowed to forgo his honor while doing a mitzvah. Okay, a lot, a lot to say about this. <laughs> um, so, so just first of all, this this whole idea of melech shemachal um in kavadi machal, right? That if a king forgives his own honor, then you know, or wants to, you know, of course, there's a, there's certain. Um, you know, halachas related to how a king, a Jewish king, has to be treated with certain respect. And if the king himself says, oh, I'm okay, you know, you don't have to show me that respect, um, the halacha here is saying that, that that's not allowed, right? The king doesn't have the right to forgo his own honor. The question is, why not? Um, so there's a few, like, basic answers, right, that, you know, a king is meant to command fear and respect, and it's not, you know, we don't want, you know, him to or to, to, we don't want to allow behavior that will cause people to lose that respect. Um, and, you know, the Tesla explains that the, the respect of a Jewish king is not his own respect. It's the respect that Hashem gives him. You know, Hashem is sort of creating this position um, that's divinely ordained, right, that he's meant to be king. Um, and therefore, it's not his right to forgo that that honor. Um, and also some of the commentaries explain that, you know, really the honor of the king is the honor of the people, right? He's appointed by the people. And therefore, his honor is really the honor of the people. And therefore, it's not his it's not his right to be able to forgo the people's honor, Um which I think in general is just sort of like a good, powerful lesson in, in, you know, demanding respect in general in any position of authority, right? Like part of your your role being a certain position is is being able being able to command a certain respect. It's not, and it's not a, it's not egotistical, right? It's you're representing the people, and therefore that respect has to be there. Um, you know, so, so then some of the commentaries ask, you know, we just explained that Agrippus wasn't necessarily really a valid king in the first place, right? So if he's not really a valid king, then why are we even asking this question, right? We're, the question that is asking is, how could Agrippus, you know, why are the Chachamim um, praising him for forgoing his honor, right, and, and standing instead of sitting when he reads the Torah, um, you know, because he's a king, he can't, can't forgo his own honor. But why are we even asking that question? He wasn't a real king, right? <laughs> um, so why would why would that question come up? Um, so there's a few different answers. The Hassam Sefer says that um, it's true, <laughs> actually, that, you know, he wasn't really a valid king, and therefore, you know, it would have been appropriate for him either way to... Uh, to, to, to forgo this honor, but because the Chachamim were sort of flattering him and sort of trying to like, you know, tell him that he was, that he was okay, you know, give validity to his kingship. So we're saying it must be that they in some way thought that if he was a real king, he still could have been, um, was allowed to be Michael on his covet. Um, the Hafla says that, that um, similar to what we said earlier from, from Rashi, that it was only Durabanan, right? Only Durabanan was Yashi to be king. But Midaraisa, since his mother was Jewish, he could have been king, and therefore the question still applies to Midaraisa, right? How he could forgo his honor. Um, and the Ritpa says something very interesting, and that, that is that 
even though he wasn't fit to be anointed as king and he didn't fulfill the requirements of what a king was supposed to be, once they did put him in that position, luckily we have to treat him like a king, right? We still have to, you know, he still has to act like a king now that he's in that position, even if, you know, the requirement, the appointing of him wasn't necessarily right. It doesn't mean that he now is not a king. He still takes on the position of king and we have to follow the halachas um, accordingly. Um so just an interesting, just understand this a little bit deeper, this whole, this whole idea of the answer of the Gemara. What was the answer of the Gemara when we asked, you know, why was he allowed to forgo his honor? The answer was because it's the mitzvah, right? Um, so interestingly, there is a Gemara in Subais, which is sort of a similar story, where we also have a story about Agripa Samalach, that um, the Gemara there says that anytime you have a king walking with his procession, um, and you also have a kala, you know, a wedding procession where, you know, back in the day, the, the kala would, you know, walk from her own home to her, you know, future husband's home. And there was a whole like wedding procession with music and everything as she was walking. And it was a mitzvah to be the kala, right? To like, you know, show rejoice in the celebration of the wedding. Um, so the question is, if the, a king's procession and a, and a kala's procession, you know, meet in the middle of the path, who has to sort of step aside to let the other one go first? And the answer is that the kala should step aside, the kala's procession should step aside for the king, right? To show honor to the king. So there's a story that a group of time was once walking with his procession and there was a procession of a kala, you know, a wedding that was coming down the path. And Agrippa sort of allowed the kala to go first, right? He forgo, forgo you know, you know, didn't didn't um, demand that that respect that the halacha says he should have gotten um, and allowed the kala to go first. And the question the Gemara asked there is the same question here as right? A king cannot choose to forgo his own honor. He's not, he doesn't have a right to do that. And what's interesting is the Gemara there gives a different answer. It doesn't say the answer that we gave, gave here. It doesn't say that um, it's because he, um, it's because it's a mitzvah, which being with Samechakala is a mitzvah. Instead, it says, oh, the reason why it was okay was because what Agrippa Tamalach did was that he, instead of, meaning it wasn't obvious that he was allowing them to go first, he just t- pretended that he had to turn down a different path. And then when he turned down a different path, um, you know, that automatically allowed the Kala to be able to go first and not have to wait for him, but no one else was able to tell that that's what he was doing, right? It wasn't, it was sort of more subtle, and that's why it was allowed. So the question is, why doesn't the Gemara there just give the answer we gave here, right? We just, the Gemara here said it's a mitzvah, right? It's a, if, 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 uh, if, if it, when it comes to a mitzvah, a king is allowed to forgo his honor for the sake of a mitzvah. So why doesn't it apply there with the Kala? So Tice Face actually raises this question, and Tice Face says that it has to do with you know, what type of mitzvah is it, right? So when it comes to a mitzvah that's related to another human being, that other person also has the obligation to show honor to the king. And therefore, the king deferring to that other person is sort of compromising his own respect and his own honor. When it comes to a mitzvah like reading in the Torah, reading in the Torah is, is, doesn't involve another human being. And therefore, the, 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 the mitzvah sort of is, the mitzvah of reading in the Torah is a way of showing honor to Hashem, and therefore, the king is allowed to forgo his own honor um, out of deference to a mitzvah, which is shown honor to Hashem. It's actually a really beautiful Rashima, which explains this a little bit on a deeper level. And he says, really, the purpose of a king in Judaism is not just to maintain law and order, right? It's not just like, you know, we need to have a government in place in order to uh, make sure people keep, 
keep halacha, right? That's not what the purpose of a king is. The purpose of a Jewish king is to sort of raise the people to a higher level spiritually. Um, and that's why the king himself has to be, you know, this an embodiment of bittal and of, you know, humility before Hashem. And really, he's really meant to be this role model, which raises the people up to this, this higher level um, of spirituality. So that explains really this, this, this whole idea, right? That when it comes to the kala, right, with the, the wedding procession, right, she, her, the kala herself also has, you know, is obligated to, you know, be inspired by the king to raise her up to a higher level of, of, um, of devotion to Hashem, right? And therefore, it doesn't make sense for the king to be able to, um, you know, forgo his honor for the sake of that, that other person. But it comes to something like reading from the Torah, right? That type of mitzvah is something which we're not sacrificing the, the, the honor of the king because the whole purpose of the king is to inspire the people to have greater humility and greater betel to Hashem. And that's exactly what Tyra does. So when the king is, so to speak, forgoing his honor in order, you know, for the sake of the Tyra reading, um, he's not doing something that's not, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly aligned with what his role as a king is because it's inspiring the people to have more humility and more, um, more deference to Hashem and to the Torah, right? And this also explains, by the way, why it says that a, Talmud, uh, a, a king can forgo his honor in front of a Talmud Chacham, right? Someone who's a Talmud Chacham, he, the king is allowed to. Um, why? Because it's the same idea, right? The Talmud Chacham also is someone who's embodying um, this, this sort of devotion and, and humility before Hashem. And therefore, it's not a contradiction to what the role of a king represents for the king to defer to, to the Talmud Chacham. Um, Okay, that's a lot, <laughs> but just one more idea that's just really beautiful um, about this idea of uh, of kavadi kavadi machol. There's a, a bunch of the sort of Hasidic uh, commentaries here discuss how this is really how this applies to Hashem, right? Hashem is also called the king, right? And in the context of Hashem, what does it mean for Hashem to forgo His honor? It means that we could sin against Him, and Hashem says, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna forgive your sins." That's so to speak, Hashem as a king forgoing, forgoing His own honor. Um, so, so the Chassam says something really beautiful. He says that you know, for for a Talmud Chacham, a Talmud Chacham can be is able to be um, is able to forgive His own honor. Why? Because his honor, like the respect that he that he's you know, that is due to him, is because of his own behavior and his own learning and his own you know Torah knowledge, and because it's his own, it's something that he acquired. He has the right to be able to forgo it, right? But with the king, the king, his honor is not his own. It's because of the people, right? It's not, like we said earlier, it's the honor of the people, and therefore it's not. He doesn't have the prerogative to say, oh, I don't, you know. I don't want that respect because he's representing the people. But he says that's only true about a human king. But Hashem, who's not a human king, Hashem is, it says, right? Hashem was already king before the people appointed him. Um, and therefore, his honor, his respect is not dependent on the people, right? And because it's not dependent on the people, that, that, therefore, he doesn't, this halacha about the, the, the king, about the melech, doesn't apply. And therefore, he, Hashem is able to, to forgo his honor. And he says that's why when we say Avinu Malkinu, we say, Avinu Malkinu Chatanu Lufanecha, right? That's the first, the first Avinu Malkinu, we sinned before you. Then right after, you say, In lanu You are the only king that we have. What we're saying is that we only have you as a king, you who are not a human king. And because you're the type of king that's not a human king who is not, de- you know, your honor is not dependent on the people, therefore you have the ability to forgive our sins, forgo your honor and overlook and overlook our sins. Um, 
Benet Sester also says that this, he sort of gives a little bit of a different twist on this. He says, it's true that based on Hashem being a king, Hashem can't forgo his honor because that's what Halacha says. You know, a king is not allowed to. But it says that a father, right, parents also, children are obligated to respect their parents and show certain, um, there's many Halachas related to how children have to respect their parents. But um, a, a father or a parent is allowed to forgo their honor. And therefore, in, in, in respect to the way Hashem is as our father, then he is allowed to forgo his honor and therefore uh, forgive our sins. So oh, that's really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of stuff to think about with this, uh, with this idea. Right. This idea. Wow. Um, so we're going to continue with the story of a great boss. Uh, and the Mishnah had said, right. When a great reached the words, if you shall not appoint a foreigner over you to be king over you, uh, he started to cry. Right. And he said, that the Chachamim tried to comfort him. And they said, oh, you're a brother, don't worry. And uh, no, the problem is, this is not exactly accurate, right? They tried to comfort him, but it's not accurate, right? Either according to Rashi, you know, at least to Rabbanan, he wasn't allowed to be a king. And certainly according to Taisvice, it was really an answer to Arisa for him to be a king, right? So there really were kind of false uh, words of comfort. Um, and so Tana Mishmei Rabbi Nathan, so Nathan said, At that moment, the enemies of the Jewish people deserve destruction. But in this case, uh, the Gemara will often doesn't want to say that the Jewish people, you know, are deserve punishment. So they'll use Sinai Israel as a euphemism. But so the real intent of this phrase is that the Jewish people, uh, you know, were deserving of negative repercussions, because they were flattering Agrippa, right? It was their words of flattery. It wasn't really true. They were covering over the truth. Um, right, I guess it's an interesting question, right? Because it's a difficult situation, right? Meaning uh, Agrippa clearly was a sincere, sincerely devoted to Yiddishkeit. He was doing good things for the Jewish people. Who knew who, knew who else would be king? in Agrippa's place if Agrippa was, you know, not king anymore. Um, and he was sincerely trying, right, to do the right thing. And so one might understand why the Chachamim were trying to console him. Um, but what we're saying here is that the truth, you know, concealing the truth has a price, right? Uh, and words that, you know, that sound good, right, and just because the truth is uncomfortable doesn't mean the truth is unimportant. Right, we're going to be uh, um, discussing that theme you know, show the rest of the rest of the Ahmad, you know, this idea of, of flattery and, um, you know, when, yeah, when is, you know, when is um, trying to sort of comfort people or make people feel good, have a price that's, um, that's, that, that's really like, you know, detrimental, right? When we're, we're sort of showing approval to behavior that, that uh, we really, we really know is wrong. Right. Um, so yeah, we're going to proceed, right. A whole, a whole bunch of, teachings about the dangers of flattery. said, from the day that the power of flattery prevailed, this Azu had um judgment has been corrupted. Then Adids have been corrupted. No one can say my deeds are greater than your deeds because, um, and the first one explained, because, you know, since the wicked are flattered, 
right? Even the righteous are held responsible for the actions of the wicked because no one is taking responsibility and reprimanding the wicked for their wrongdoing. From the West expanded. Some say it was Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi. It is permitted to flatter wicked people in this world, right? Meaning, he's saying that, you know, although it's not ideal, sometimes there are situations where, you know, it's necessary. You got to choose the better of two evils, if you will. But that's only in this world, right? Shanamars, it says, Right, in the future, the wicked person will no longer be called, or rather the devil, the sort of the the boorish or, you know, uncouth person shall no longer be called generous, nor shall the drunkard be called noble. Right, so that's talking about the future. So Mikal, that implies that Elam Hazet in this world, right, before Mashiach comes or before, you know, Elam Haba, um, it's permitted, right? Sometimes it's permitted and, you know, sometimes you're, you need to uh, do what you got to do. Yeah, just a little bit. So, so, so first of all, what... What defines this this flattery, right? Hanufa, like what does that mean? So in general, we're trying to you know explain that this 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 is an iser that is basically defined as when you see someone doing something wrong and you instead of sort of reprimanding them for it or you know sort of pointing out that this is something that's wrong, we encourage them and you know tell them that they're doing okay, right? Sort of try to comfort them in their in their wrongdoing. And he says they say aside from the fact that we're not doing the mitzvah of teichacha, right, of sort of rebuking them for what they're doing wrong, you're also encouraging negative behavior. And for sure, if you do this publicly, not only are you encouraging this person in their negative behavior, you're encouraging other people as well that this is okay, right? Um, so actually, Ramesha Feinstein kind of specifies that when we talk about this iser, it means specifically when you're showing approval for the thing that they did wrong. It doesn't mean that if someone did something wrong, um, and anytime if you praise them in any way about other things that they've done, that that would necessarily be concluded in, in Khanifa. Um, and it's also important to know that some people say there's also another category of, 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 of flattery, which is not necessarily when you're specifically approving of something negative that someone did. But when you're just, um, you know, sort of saying something positive, which you don't necessarily really mean, right? It's not sort of not totally sincere. And that second cat, that latter category is sort of where there's more flexibility in terms of when it could be allowed. You know, if it's for the sake of peace or for the sake of encouraging someone to do more positive things, then there can, there is room to sort of do, you know, compliment people insincerely um, if it sort of has a positive, a positive purpose. I'm also interested mm-hmm. here what we said here about the Rashaim that sometimes you can you can flatter Rashaim. I guess the basic understanding is that um, you know it's out of fear, right? You're afraid that there's you're going to sort of come to some sort of harm if you don't. Um, of course, the Gripas was not really in this category, right? I mean, and the reason why we're the the Chachamim are being criticized for sort of flattering a Gripas was because he wasn't really a Russia, right? He wasn't someone who was he was he was kind to the Jewish people, and of course, he was expressing remorse for the fact that he wasn't really in the right position being king. Um, and but the Chachamim didn't have to, you know, go out of their way to show that that they're okay with it. You know, like they could have just acknowledged, like let him you know, let him sort of express that remorse without trying to comfort him and say, no, 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 it's okay. Um, when indeed he mm-hmm. wasn't, he, it's true that he wasn't a valid king. Right. He would have been, also might've been receptive to it, right? He's someone who of anyone would have been, you know, receptive to, you know, their critique, disapproval, right. Right, critique yeah. uh, as opposed to a Russia. 
uh, so Roshimon Lakish said uh, that one is allowed to, you can prove the idea that one is allowed to at times flatter Roshim from this place. Right, so Yaakov, when he meets with Asaph, says, uh, I've seen your face, your face looks like the face of an angel, right? Uh, and you're pleased with me. So Yaakov was flattering Asaph by saying he looks like a, a Malach, right? So Pliga de Rebbe Levi, so so Rish Lakish is disagreeing with Rabbi Levi because the Amar Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Levi said he interpreted this pasuk not as flattery, but kind of an indirect, like uh, scare tactic, right? So he said, "What was Yaakov doing?" What can you compare this conversation between Yaakov and Esav to? What is it? Uh, similar to it's like someone who like invites his friend and he realizes his friend wants to kill him so Amarlai says to him this flavor of the dish that I'm eating it tastes exactly like a dish that I tasted in the house of the king so Amar so the the host then, you know, then the the host, right, who wants to kill him, says, Amar, Yadale Malka Mistafe below Kajale. Right? He says, Oh, the king knows him. So therefore he's gonna be afraid and he's not gonna kill him. Right. So he's saying that what Yaakov's doing is he's saying, Oh, you look like an angel. It, like implying that Yaakov is a regular, you know, knows angels, knows what angels look like. And that was an indirect way of scaring Aesop uh, and deterring him from harming him. Right, so according to Rabbi Levi, this is not flattery at all. But Rish Lakish takes this pasuk at face value and says that it is indeed flattery, and Yaakov was allowed to do this because, uh, you know, otherwise he might be harmed. Amar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar said, "Kol adam maybe afla Anyone who has flattery, the trait, the attribute of flattery, is part of his character, brings anger to the world, as it says." Those with flattery in their hearts bring about wrath. And moreover, his prayers are not answered. They do not cry for help when he binds them. That those words are the conclusion of the previous pasuk. Probably this uh, this thing that you know he's the person the flatterer doesn't have his. <laughs> Those answered, you know, Gamar's not just trying to list a bunch of horrible things that's going to happen to them. So, but it's it's like there's like a correlation here. So, Benayada says just on a very simple level, right? Like he's sitting with his mouth by trying to flatter, and therefore he's being punished with his mouth that his feelings are not accepted. Um, but the Maharal says, sort of, you know, kind of a, a step further, which is that, you know, this person who's a flatterer, his tefillah will just be considered like flattery as well, right? I Meaning if that's sort of his general mode of speaking, then the assumption is that when he's stopping Tashem, it's also only superficial. He's not really speaking sincerely. And tefillahs are only accepted when it's really coming from uh, from the heart. Mm. If you accustom yourself to that way, not being sincere and um, having depth to to what you're, what you're saying. Right. Well, okay. So uh, the Gemara is now going to list a bunch of teachings for Rabbi Elazar. And so we have a siman, a series of simanim or kind of acronyms to help us remember the following series of teachings, right? So the teachings are all involving the following words, af, ubar, gehenom, biyadai, nida, gaila. Okay. 
So, the Amr of Elazar, Elazar said, Kodam Shish Bechanufa, Afilu Ubarin Shabbay, Iman, Makalan, I say, right? Anyone who has flattery, who is a flatterer, even the fetuses in the mother's wombs, in their mother's wombs, uh, curse him. Shanamar, Amr Larasa Tadakata, Yikbu Amim, Yizamu Umim. Right, one who says to the wicked, "You're a thotic," meaning one who flatters a, a wicked person by calling him righteous. Uh, you can, the nations shall curse him, and the peoples shall uh, also kind of, you know, another word for curse, a synonym for curse him. The ain kaib The word kaib from the word yikbuhu uh, indicates a curse. Shenamar like habaykel. Right, as Bilam said, you know, how can I curse someone who God has not cursed? Right, you also used another instance where the word that root, kuf beis hey, is used as curse. The ain leum, the expression of leum, which literally means nation, also indicates ubar and fetuses. Shanamar um leum yamat. Right, Rifka was told uh, when she inquired uh, Shame and Aver about the sort of tumultuous, you know, this like battle she was feeling inside her womb. And she was told, um, il, um, yamat, one nation shall be stronger than the other. And the fetuses in her room were called l'um, uh, nations. And so too here in this pasuk, uh, l'um has that uh, allegorical meaning. But I'm a Rabbi Lezer. Uh, so Rabbi Lezer says further, call Adam shiyesh by chanufa, nefal wikahenem. Anyone who is a flatter will fall into gehenem. Shanamar have ha'imram l'ra, taiv l'taiv ra. Uh, though, like, you know, woe are to those who call the bad good and the good bad. Maxiv Acharav, what is written uh, a few seconds later. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours straw and chaff is consumed by the flame, right, so too will these people be consumed by the flames of Gehenna. Okay, we'll stop here and we'll pick up tomorrow with Daf Mem Base. Thanks for listening.